1: Hello and welcome to when diplomacy fails. Hey guys, welcome to when diplomacy fails. Welcome to when diplomacy fails. Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome to when diplomacy fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War, Seven Years' War, of the when diplomacy fails special on Napoleon, the Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916... To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Well, hello there, history friends. Welcome to another collaboration episode with another special guest. Today I am joined by Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast, which is obviously a good thing because if you know your history podcasting, you know Robin Pearson. He is consistently one of the most popular history podcasts out there. He claims to have inherited the mantle from Mike Duncan and says that that's why, it's because he's standing on the shoulders of giants, which of course, we get into, but I would argue that he's a very, very good podcaster in his own right, and if you've, well, I don't know, guys, I mean, come on, if you've never heard of Robin Pearson, there's not much I can do for you, but I can send you towards his podcast. Go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com and you can check out what Robin Pearson is doing right then and there. Okay, so, What's in the box? What's going on in this podcast episode and why should you guys care? Well, let's just say I have a lot of questions about diplomacy in the Byzantine age and Robin Pearson has a lot of answers for me. So yeah, it's probably one of the best structured collaboration episodes out there and that's because, well, we just were great, let's be honest. Anyway, you can be the judge of that, guys. I really hope you enjoy it and I hope you guys will let me know what you thought about it because, well... That's why I do this kind of thing. I want to know what you thought and I want to make sure that you are enjoying these collaboration episodes because I know in a way they're a bit different from what I normally do. But hey, it's nice to do something different for a change. It's nice to stretch. It's good to stretch and get out there and maybe do things you're not necessarily comfortable with because you'd rather be talking by yourself. But hey, I think the result says everything about it. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this collab episode. Thanks, guys. You're all awesome. Enjoy. You're a podcaster who's kind of ahead of the curve in popularity, but you, you haven't forgotten where you came from. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> we, all, we all appreciate that.
2: <laughs> uh, no problem at all. Well, you know, I, I'm, I stand on the shoulders of Mike Duncan, Yeah, you know, in terms of people having an investment in Roman history. So sure, I'm, yeah. I'm very aware. And I'm also, because I'm a podcast listener, you know, and have like 30 on the go, you know, I'm always keen for new podcasts. So I've never thought, well, you know, I don't want these guys to to do well because they'll threaten me. I always think, no, I, I always want more of good podcasts. So I think, no, no, the better, the better to work together.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and Mike, Mike Duncan never applied to my email. So, so whatever. Oh,
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, he, not bitter. <laughs> no, he never replied to mine. You know, in the first place, sort of saying, "This is my plan. I hope that's okay." Like, I got no reply. It was only whenever, you know, four years later, when he'd obviously heard who I was, that he replied. So,
1: oh well, that's yeah. yeah. Apparently, he's he, just bad at replying to emails. I heard. Yeah, I mean,
2: I imagine he gets lots. Um, yeah, <laughs>
1: I'd say so. <laughs> yeah. Ah, well. Okay, history friends. This is a surprise, in, in many ways, collaboration episode between myself and, of course, you may have noticed from the title, Robin Pearson from A History of Byzantium. How's it going, Robin?
2: Very, very good. Hello. I feel like I should be singing happy birthday to you. <laughs> fifth birthday of the podcast.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We're We're running wild. We're going crazy. I mean... I haven't even gotten a birthday cake yet. I'm I'm quite upset, but I'm sure I'll find a way around that. But maybe the next best thing to a birthday cake is having yourself on. So you're very welcome.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm here to provide an audio treat for you and your (laughs) listeners.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. That's why we're here. So got loads of stuff. Loads of really exciting things, I think, to run through that really relating kind of the theme of when diplomacy fails, which obviously is diplomacy and international relations and all that kind of stuff, relating it back to, well, obviously your niche, which is, of course, Byzantium, and I love being able to do that, like, for example, with Kevin Stred for History of English, we did, like, diplomacy, but we related it to kind of the origins of of certain terms in diplomacy in the English language, so I think the best way to start this off, I mean... The position, the geographic position of of Byzantium. I mean, we know it fell in 1453. At least that's that's a kind of very tragic date that's kind of sticks in my mind. It still feels too soon to me. But as <laughs> as a city that's kind of constantly under threat from like east and west, if you like, how did how how like what kind of diplomacy did it employ to kind of defend itself from its less civilized neighbors? Say,
2: well. Yes, for, for for those who don't know, when we talk about Byzantium, we're basically talking about Constantinople, now Istanbul. It it indeed is is geographically located next to the Balkans, and um, basically was um, targeted by tribes coming down from the steppe lands that run from China down to Hungary for a thousand years, pretty much. Um, <laughs> You know, the city was founded in 330 AD, and as early as 378, um, the Visigoths killed an emperor in battle and marched on the city. And a century, right. about, a century <laughs> later, Attila the Hun was there too, and it pretty much continued from there. So yeah, the uncivilized neighbors were all coming from the north, and the main I would say the main thing you need to know is is about the walls of Constantinople. It's a strange place to start diplomatically the walls of constantinople were famously thick and high and there are three sets of them going higher each time and that's basically what starts their relationship with less civilized nations that (laughs) that they're saying there's no way you can get over those walls and and usually these tribes didn't have sophisticated siege engines and and more than that didn't have the logistics to keep feeding an army that were going to besiege the city sure Uh, and so that 's your relationship is they 're going to come and raid and ravage all that land that 's now you know fifteen different countries in the Balkans, and large parts of it were were under Roman control under Byzantine control for that thousand years and so then you have to negotiate from there how can we how can we survive? How can we have a relationship given that uh, we know different peoples are going to come down and raid. But they're not going to threaten us directly. So the, the next step for, from a Byzantine point of view is just to pay them not to come. Um, And it's, um, you know, it's 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 a way that diplomacy does go on. You know, you think today about aid packages coming from the United States to various places and or arms deals going on so that, you know, it's more indirect today. But back in Byzantine times, they just literally said, let's send them a wheelbarrow full of gold coins and say, look. It, here's the money you think you're going to get by coming and smashing people's doors in and taking it. Just take this and don't bother coming. Um, that's its most basic <laughs> basic way of paying for peace, <laughs> sort of like protection money. And then you might get a little bit more subtle. You might say, all right, we'll pay the neighbors of this tribe we think are threatening us to attack them. So mm. we'll send them the wheelbarrow full of money. And they can uh, hit them from behind or when they least expect it. So there's their indirect ways. The other, and then in, let's say you don't pay protection money, you put them on the payroll. So this was particularly true for, um, the Armenians who lived at the other end of the empire in the right. uh, Eastern Turkish mountains, we would call them now. Um, but yeah, loads of, armenian princes up there were given you know here's your robes of state and here's your new title yeah and here's your salary for the year now guard that mountain pass and we'll call you the general of you know whatever so and then obviously once you've got someone hooked on getting an annual salary it's easier to to tell them what to do sure so yeah i think i think those those are the ways to use cash and then you can get, they got a little more sophisticated the closer a tribe became to Constantinople. So the, the most famous example of the, it was a tribe called the Bulgars. Mm, where you mm. can, you can see where this is going. Those of you who know yeah. your modern <laughs> uh, geography, you know, they moved into the area just outside Constantinople and they didn't budge and they kept beating the Byzantine army in battle. So. the the stage was set how are we going to live next door to these people who are so different to us so they the romans tried to convert them you know this uh byzantine clerics and monks started translating the gospels into the languages of people living in the balkans a lot of the people there yeah a lot of the people there were were slavic and this wasn't necessarily like a a master plan it just kind of worked out this way you know genuine uh evangelical clerics you know what wanted to convert people and then it ended up working out as a, a tool of the state and yeah. so eventually the bulgarians were converted and of course that meant that byzantine priests were going to work there and so you had sort of spies unofficially people working for your interest trying to make them you know more like you which again i think you can see modern parallels today if you set up a. International Monetary Fund, yeah, and, and you you know it's telling people how to organize their economies. You're you're essentially trying to make states operate the way you operate, and that's how Christianity functioned in this context. And then I think the I think the final thing that was attempted was uh, marriages, which is a is a classic of medieval times. Uh, you send us a bride for the emperor, or in rare cases, we'll send you an imperial princess, and hopefully that will lead to good relations at the highest level. So I'd say those are the main strategies for keeping peace with the, the less civilized nations that the Byzantines ran up against.
1: I think just one issue that I would, I would always love to know about that, the whole thing of like paying people to stay away. I mean, we know that it backfired tremendously when they tried to pay off the Vikings because the Vikings were like, look at all this gold. There must be more of that came from. Let's find out. So <laughs> do you know of any kind of cases where that happened with, with the likes of a a tribe maybe that thought, oh, this looks interesting kind of thing.
2: I mean, definitely it's difficult to think of specifics because lots of tribes would basically accept the money and not raid, but any pretext for breaking the truce would be taken. Oh, yeah. So usually if the emperor died... You get raided immediately because they've been waiting for this to say, well, our treaty was with him, <laughs> not, not with you as a state. And sometimes that wasn't even a trick. You know, sometimes in tribal societies, that's from their point of view, that's true. They have no bureaucracy. So they say, look, we made a deal with your, with your leader and he's gone. So here we come. Uh, and certainly the, the, I think Attila, Attila the Hun received the most money from the government of Constantinople and. They they sent him money with people who were there to try and assassinate him, and they failed. <laughs> oh no! So he then marched down and doubled the amount they owed him. So that wow. definitely that backfired spectacularly.
1: Yes, that is backfiring. I mean, you were talking there about like the less civilized neighbors, but what about say say the more civilized neighbors, the ones that did have bureaucracies and couldn't be pawned off with just money? What what kind of ways did they do then? And and well, I suppose I can a- address this after the event, but. Like diplomatic traditions, would they have been coming to the fore at that stage? Like the likes of protection of ambassadors kind of thing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So turning to the east, so if you think about Turkey today and you look to the borders there, that's where the Byzantines' more civilized neighbors were. The Sasanids. Exactly. The Sasanid Persians and then the Arab Caliphate following that and then finally the Turks Yeah, all all of those states had big bureaucracies just like the Byzantines. And the the two sides were usually at war. So this did require a more complicated diplomatic process. Mm. And so, yeah, here we see uh, much more familiar modern diplomatic techniques. There weren't resident ambassadors, but ambassadors and envoys were often sent by either side to discuss a truce or to discuss any kind of deal like that. And on some occasions, official peace treaties were drawn up. And so these meetings were just like we'd have today. There'd be great care shown for the welfare of the ambassador and his team, and he'd be entertained and feasted. And there would be teams of translators to make sure everyone was on the same page. We have one, often these Texts don't survive, but in one case, a very big treaty in the 6th century um, between Justinian and Kusro, the Persian king of kings, who are both very big names in their, uh, okay. in their respective histories. Yes. And the bit of that treaty that survived is it kind of tells us that the translation process was really complicated. It had to be done several times to make sure that the intensity <laughs> of wording was accurate. Mm. Um in terms of I don't know how how much how much latitude you were allowed if you know some trader you know in the designated trading spot may you know committed a crime who's who would be punishing them and which side all these sort of things just like you would get today and and the bit I like the most was they had to agree on what to do about leap years uh, <laughs> because the idea was well if we put like say um, this treaty is for three years and then there's going to be a leap year in there, they're a bit worried that the other side would then invade the day before the other side were ready because, you know, the, they'd say, well, it's not that we didn't do anything wrong. You didn't mention. leap wow. years. So there's, there's that, you know, again, it's not that that's not, you know, I suppose that's the sort of thing you'd still discuss today, but that's kind of an amusing technicality. It, there's an interesting dichotomy today. You know, because of the nature of technology, war breaking out in most states is kind of a big deal and ends diplomatic niceties. Whereas the relationship be- between the caliphate uh, and the Byzantines in the Middle Ages was a state of perpetual war with the-, the caliphate sending raids annually into the empire. And so on one occasion, a truce was agreed while the Arabs were you know, quite near Constantinople. Quite- they'd already advanced all the way in envoice was sent they agreed a truce so now the arab army needs to march all the way home mm. and they've been raiding all yeah. this way but now <laughs> we're friends so the the byzantines send word ahead saying to the you know farmers on the road can you bring your goods to the side of the road to sell to the arabs well a week wow. ago, the Arabs were coming to my farm and kicking the door in and taking it. But now yeah. I'm being ordered to go and sell it to them. So you get, yeah, there's a bizarre levels of uh, formality in between, you know, horrible things happening. Yeah. <laughs> so generally, diplomatic traditions, you know, obviously we hear examples of where Ambassadors got locked up because there was some kind of suspicious behavior going on or whatever. But generally, uh, you would have diplomatic immunity and you'd you'd protect people because you didn't want bad things to happen. So yeah,
1: mm, okay, that's a fairly well rounded. I like the idea of there being like the Byzantines kind of just sitting there atop their throne in Constantinople and being like, "Oh, they're civilized. They're not civilized," kind of thing. But I always kind of wondered how they would have looked at like the western roman empire and i think the idea that the empire kind of split in half and there were these two independent halves that always really fascinated me and i've always wanted to know more about the diplomacy between the two halves so now that i have you on i just can't resist (laughs) how would you how would you kind of describe the diplomatic relationship with western europe i mean was there any kind of like affection or or like admiration was there any kind of this like romantic idea of oh we're still roman we should just cooperate all the time kind of thing
2: <laughs> it's it's an excellent question you know it's it's a funny one because the two sides kind of met in italy still the, the, the byzantines held sicily for a long period and and had little colonies on the sort of heel and toe of italy in between the balkans was kind of this sea of Slavic people and, and Bulgarian people. If this is sort of just a what if situation, if if the Byzantines had maintained control of the Balkans and had had sort of it had remained full of Byzantine people, I think the relationship would have been much stronger. But once it was gone, all the dialogue kind of happened in Latin and in Italian in Italy, and then ships had to travel all the way around the Balkans to Constantinople, and Great. so there, the, this dislocation is is what caused a lot of problems. So yeah, it, initially uh there was a sense that from Constantinople that the, the Franks, who were kind of the big power in in France and and in bits of Italy, that they were kind of fairly close to being barbarians, but at least they were. Catholic, at least they were, you know, of, of the correct Christian faith. Yeah. And I'd say as long as that dynamic lasted, the Franks did did have, I wouldn't say affection, but respect for the Byzantines. They they viewed them as a more sophisticated state and they would borrow um, dress and ceremony and nomenclature and coin designs and things from Constantinople because they, they recognized that that world was was grander than their own. A few attempts at marriage alliances, a few joint military operations against sort of Arab pirates, but very low level. So the the relationship was a little bit affectionate, I'd say up until uh, 800 AD, which is when Charlemagne was crowned Roman emperor by the Pope in Rome. And this caused a lot of ill feeling in Byzantium because they didn't call themselves uh byzantines that's a modern term they call themselves romans and so even in another language someone saying i'm the emperor of the romans f- sounded to them like you know me saying i'm the king of france like, yeah <laughs> you know you're making a claim on my people whereas to the to the franks the the roman emperor was you know <laughs> like me saying I'm viceroy of India. It's a it's a thing that doesn't exist anymore. It's yeah, just a title. Of course. And so, yeah, that that's where the relationship started to sour. And, of course, at the same time, the Charlemagne was so powerful that in Constantinople, they were beginning to realize that the West was growing again as a threat, a potential threat to their interests in Italy and wherever. And it kind of just degraded from there, the relationship, because... Frankish historians started to differentiate between the ancient Romans and the contemporary ones, who they started to call Greeks, because they spoke Greek, which made sense, but the, the Romans, you know, the Byzantines thought of themselves as Romans, so they didn't like this distinction, and it was a political distinction, it was, it was there to kind of explain why Charlemagne could rule Italy as the Roman emperor and, and the people in the East calling themselves Romans are just Greeks. Right. Yeah. That tension just grew. And as Western European kingdoms became more strong uh, economically and militarily stronger, they started to deal with the Byzantines as they would any rival power and no longer had that sense of respect and, um, admiration for them. And this all culminated in the fourth crusade where the Western troops sacked Constantinople. So yeah, it's, uh, just growing more each (laughs) year. basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was actually going to mention that. I mean, when it comes down to the likes of like kind of traumatic events in Constantinople itself, I mean, that really stands out to me. But it stands out to me as a kind of, I suppose it wasn't necessarily Constantinople's fault, but I had this idea that the the Byzantines kind of sucked at diplomacy in a way. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that kind of stood out to me that like, this crusade somehow ends up sacking their capital. Like, was that, I don't know. Can that be called an example of sucking at diplomacy or do any other examples kind of spring to mind?
2: Yeah, I mean, you you could definitely say <laughs> <laughs> that that's bad diplomacy. The Romans, the Byzantines, were very wary of Western powers. They recognized fairly early on that the the Western powers didn't have to face the same enemies they did that, that they were under threat from the caliphate for a very long time and and they you know that was a serious threat that was like living through the cold war you know where you really did believe if things went wrong you might be wiped out and sure they knew when western armies and um you know the normans came and 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 sort of started uh, sniffing around the balkans and things they thought well you know these guys have got everything to gain and nothing to lose, and so yes, unfortunately, the the weaker the the Byzantine position got, the more they had to rely on on the Crusaders, and it and it ended very badly. I think up to that point, the the fact that the Romans had survived against huge odds, mm. um, you know, being under assault for century after century, but surviving suggests they were pretty good diplomatically. They they definitely had enemies who had uh, moments. Where they sucked. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think the best example would be the the Vandals, who give us our modern term, of uh, vandalism, from sacking Rome. They migrated to Africa, to to modern sort of Tunisia, and they were enjoying, you know, being overlords of a of basically a Roman province. Hmm. And then they did, they decided to persecute the Roman population, and It's kind of an ironic situation because they justified it by saying um, we're just behaving like true Romans who, of course, had persecuted any form of Christian heresy out of the empire. Well, the Vandals were one of those heretics. They were Aryan Christians, so they decided let's persecute our native Roman population Ah. into believing what we believe yeah um, and that of course prompted Constantinople to send an armada against them, and when they did, they weren't on the lookout, and half their army were away uh in Sardinia, and they got wiped out and oh. so they uh they provoked their own destruction and then didn't see a massive navy coming towards them, so that was that's about as bad as uh, diplomacy as you can get, i think
1: yeah yeah, but it it is it is pretty bad all right I mean. On the other end of the scale, though, and maybe to lift the mood a bit, do any like any other Byzantine era powers stand out for like good reasons? Say they were better at diplomacy or, or particularly cunning in any kind of way?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think the the Bulgars, who then became the Bulgarians, had a series of very good, strong rulers during the period where they converted to Christianity, and they 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 had Khans before they then became Tsars. Yes. So the last Khan and the first Tsar, as it were, was Boris. And he decided he was going to be baptized and kind of, you know, make his uh, realm a Christian state. And so he negotiated with Constantinople about sending bishops and building churches and what what have you. And when he couldn't get the concessions he wanted from them, he turned to the Franks and said, you send me missionaries then. And of course, when they arrived, the patriarch of Constantinople suddenly said, okay, we'll we'll give you a better deal. (laughs) Um, Boris was clever, and his son Simeon was also pretty good at negotiations. So he then, he wanted a better peace treaty. And so he accused the Byzantines of using uh, deliberately ambiguous Greek in the peace treaty, again, a bit like the Leap Years. And because he spoke Greek, and this was sort of the thing that the Byzantines might do. He was able to get them <laughs> to say, fine, we'll reword the peace treaty. And while they were doing that, he attacked them again oh. um, so that he could get, again, a better deal. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd say that the Vikings, as you say, were pretty good too. Once they settled in Kiev, we kind of call them the Rus, um, mm. before they become the Russians. And they similarly, they would launch a huge naval expedition against Constantinople and scare the bejesus out of everyone and (laughs) then like two years later their ambassadors would turn up saying oh that was nothing to do with us we're very sorry about that but how about we discuss uh you know a trade agreement now yeah and then that'll help us stop that sort of thing from happening again so yeah
1: (laughs) wink wink yeah exactly so
2: so they're pretty good good. pretty Mm -hmm.
1: good i mean to bring it all full circle i you mentioned the fact that they like they should be judged as at least reasonable because they endured for so long. But is it really fair to say that the Byzantines were overall good at diplomacy? I mean, they did some real stinkers, like, and they missed out on a good few opportunities. So could you say that they were good overall?
2: Uh, Yeah, I I think, I mean, maybe I'm biased. I would say, I'd still say yes, because uh, to survive for over a thousand years under constant attack was pretty good. But uh, what I'd say is, when you're looking at the long term of a state that survived for so long, I'd say it's less about being cunning and clever in the moment and more about being adaptive. I'd say the Byzantines were adaptive diplomatically. Mm. Um, so when the, the Arabs first sort of converted to Islam, the, it took the Romans a long time to believe that this was a real religion, which is fair enough at first because, you know, you've never heard of it. But they, they kind of moved from thinking, well, OK, so they have some sort of pagan belief to then, you know, reading the Quran and understanding it better and saying, OK, well, we think it's now just a heresy. But uh, <laughs> even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. After a while, they said, "Okay, it's clearly not. It's clearly a competitor. So they turned a building in Constantinople into a mosque. And they kind of thought, well, look, we're going to have Arab envoys coming here. We're going to have Arab prisoners turn up here. Let's give them a place to worship and acknowledge their religion. And that way they'll start to see us as equals and and worth, you know, equal treatment. Ah. Um, And yeah, I'd say that sort of adaptiveness is, is what kept them alive in, in some ways, because a similar thing happened during the crusades. You know, the, the Turkish leader who was defeated by the crusaders, his wife and children were, were captured and the Byzantine representatives went in and took them away from the Crusaders, gave them a special escort, and sent them uh, straight back, unharmed, to, to the Turks. And wow. the Crusaders said, you know, what are you doing? This, this is terrible diplomacy. You didn't get anything for that. And, of course, the Byzantines were saying, well, we have to deal with the Turks when you're yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they will look very differently at us after this than they'll look at you. And so, again, they were thinking and thinking long term, how can we how can we make people think, OK, maybe, you know, maybe these people are worth dealing with on, on an even footing. And I think that's the key part of the key to their survival. I
1: suppose this is kind of a, a kind of a guilty pleasure question. But have you ever played any of those kind of games, say, like the Rome Total War, the like the Barbarian Invasion or even like one of the other ones like Europe or Universalis and like tried to bring. Byzantium into into the modern age kind of thing of trying to (laughs) defy like the actual course of history in that kind of way.
2: Yeah, I have played those games and I'm trying to think, it probably was like one of the older ones, medieval Mm -hmm. Total War, where I think it's probably like the Mongols just turn up
1: yeah, halfway through the failure. game and
2: <laughs> you've you've been building into yeah the eastern realms and suddenly they just wipe you out and i was like this is just like real life this is yeah. what teeth had to put up with so yeah mm. that's a painful process
1: yeah <laughs> another question as well that i'd always wondered i mean i talked before about podcasters getting kind of attached to their source material like i was talking to jamie redfern about like history of the united states and like asking him if like if, because he's British, does he feel a kind of twinge of maybe not necessarily sadness, but what, to see the American Revolution be successful, is he kind of like oh poor old Blighty kind of thing? I mean, <laughs> in, in the case of yourself, when you look at like the fact that the, the Byzantines endured for so long, do you feel a kind of element of of sadness, or maybe maybe what might have been when in 1453,
2: say a listener asked this question, you know, kind of do you? sympathize with the romans and do you take their side and i mean i think i think the answer is definitely yes and i obviously i try to be objective and i definitely lean toward historians who who strip away any kind of praise and just look to okay what's the reality underneath this sure but at the same time i think you know i think a lot of people are interested in history because it's 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 just another great story it 's just another narrative it 's almost like science fiction you know it's it 's a, a world of people that 's different to our own mm. and i don 't think many people read a story without getting emotionally involved of course and so yeah i think i I think it 's nice that they they seem disconnected enough from me that i don 't have any kind of <laughs> modern political views, which obviously Greek and Turkish people do
0: mm.
2: um, but in a general sense, yeah they 're my home team, and i 'm following them in this win win and loss record that they have and and it is sad to see them lose and get wiped out and i think in on a sort of more serious historical level i think there's a huge amount that's very analogous to today just makes me kind of think this civilization that got wiped away could teach us a huge amount oh yeah and i I, you know and i i don't mean in a Prosaic, serious sense, even even in funny ways, just human nature (laughs) ways. And you look Mm. back and think, has anything really changed that much? So yeah, no, I, I, it's a, it's a great question, and yeah, I suppose I'll always have a soft spot for the, for the
1: Byzantines. (laughs) I mean, I suppose like with myself, the benefit, I I guess, of really, well, I suppose it's a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, with when diplomacy fails, I get to hop all over the historical map. But then, on the other hand, when you latch on to certain eras for like specials or what have you, I do find myself getting very involved. And I mean, one good example I, I found was kind of the Russo-Turkish War, and it, it's kind of tied in, I suppose, in a little way because, well, I mean, th- those powers weren't weren't necessarily around back then. But I suppose the Ottoman Empire really in its in its genesis, while the Byzantines were in their decline, but. The Russo-Turkish War, like in 1877, it's a very understudied war and it's really kind of glossed over. It's just one of the many times that Russia and Turkey went to war, but a kind of sideshow in it. It's also known because Benjamin Disraeli was the prime minister at the time of, of Great Britain. And when people look at it, they often acknowledge that fact and kind of just move on. But the really remarkable thing about that war is that it's very similar to the situation in Britain during the First World War. And really the only thing that stopped Britain going to war in 1877 with, with Russia was the fact that you had a kind of a peacemaking foreign minister in the form of Lord Derby, like in the right place at the right time. But then in 1914, you didn't have one of those. Instead, you had, mm. Sir, you had Sir Edward Grey, who was pretty much anti-German and very pro-Russian and really a kind of break with the past of how Britain had viewed itself in Europe for me that that's just, that's really just an example of of something I got involved in because I was kind of like oh I wish people knew more about this because it's a really good comparison and it can help us learn about what was missing from 1914 but yeah I suppose there's there's pros and cons of having of having stories you you're stuck into essentially but I suppose that kind of leads me to my next question I mean obviously it's a history of byzantium and has to end eventually so were you to cover another podcast, what do you think you would cover? <laughs>
2: uh, it's a it's a question that comes up often. Um, yeah, usually from non-listeners. You mm. know, to, to, I've explained my job to people, and they kind of go, "Yeah, but what do you do after that?" Uh, <laughs> which I always think, "Hey, I don't, I don't ask you. Yeah, but what are you going to do when you know the insurance business crashes?" I don't yeah. know. But um, yeah, I mean, I, the, I've got lots of ideas. Some of them are non-history. Um, you know, before I did this podcast, uh, I was over at the TV telling people why their favorite shows were no good, which shockingly <laughs> was not that successful. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, there are, there are other ideas. I, I have thought about, you know, doing more Roman history. Uh, we'll see, but certainly I, I've covered the Byzantine era in such depth. It's definitely provoked lots of questions about the origins of Christianity and the origins of sort of monotheism taking over in the Roman Empire. And so there are things I'd like to explore in that direction. But, you know, I could go back even further into Greek history or um, forward into other medieval periods. Um, I'd, I'd say I'm unlikely to do a modern history podcast. Um, I quite enjoy the science fiction aspect of uh, of ancient and medieval history. So it may <laughs> yeah. probably be probably be somewhere there
1: would you be tempted even to just take a mini series maybe say of a power that was around at the time and maybe take their story and break it down and go from the beginning to end say there was about four or five powers that were only kind of hanging around for 200 years or so each i mean that's a that's a nice way to kind of hop around and maybe keep the byzantine story alive for a while
2: yeah absolutely the the one drawback, um, and and this is partly why the Romans, you know, throughout their history, tend to be a home team for people, is that often those other powers don't have written histories, mm, yeah. and so you can you can do a podcast, but the depth is often lacking because generally you'd, you'd be talking about the enemies of Byzantium using Byzantine sources, <laughs> um, yeah, and then to do a history of say the Caliphate. Would be i think it would be difficult because there are there are certain but and obviously there is already a history of islam podcasts but you know and and being you know not a Muslim and not at all immersed in that culture there there may be a gap that it, that it's harder to overcome but you yeah know, there's there's lots of ideas i mean i I'm all for doing people doing different podcasts on the same topic but from different angles so mm. you know there's definitely room to Explore I mean,
1: one thing I would always have been interested in. I mean, you are in many ways a successor to to Mike Duncan because you took on like Byzantium and you took on their history. But like, what about a history of like the city of Rome? Say from yeah. the moment that the Roman, the Western Roman Empire fell. I mean, seems to me like there's a. I mean, I don't know source wise, but it's one of those things that I'd be like, huh, ah, that'd be that'd be interesting. I mean, you could take it up to. I mean, I suppose it'd be so complex and everything else, but. Yeah, that's a. <laughs> there's a challenge for
2: you, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've thinking. got you've well, you've got the history of the papacy podcast. You know, is already going to be covering some angles of that, so it would yeah, have to be a different a different angle. But yeah, I mean, you, you you could do a show that wasn't sort of narrative based that had archaeology and sociology and you know, definitely some of the most interesting things I've come across mm. haven't strictly been history narrative stuff. They've you know, they've been. Um, Science history, medical history, uh, language history, uh, you know, the, some of the things that have blown my mind have, have been from different fields, and I, I really yeah. like that, but you have to read a lot to, uh, <laughs> to find those nuggets.
1: Oh, big time. And it's funny that you mentioned medical history there, because I think my favorite episode of yours, and I think the favorite episode of yours from everyone, well, not everyone, but most people's point of view, the one that really just kind of stuck out was the one on the Justinian Plague yeah, and that—do you get that a lot? Like, I'm just <laughs> wondering because whenever I I talk to anyone about it, they always mention that episode. I mean, I I guess I just wondered, like, is there anything when you were making it, did you know it was going to be like so favoured by people, or or what?
2: Yeah, I mean, I am completely indebted to a book called Justinian's Flea by William Rosen, um, which. When I, I, my guiding stick with the podcast is if my mind is blown, then the listeners will be. And so, yeah, I read that book and was like, wow. And so I, I, yeah, I rewrote that episode something like five times trying to do it justice and, you know, not being a science person, you know, I was very dependent on, on his book. And yeah, you know, I definitely thought this will be really good and people will be interested. But there was always there's always that thing in the back of your mind where people go, hey, I you know, I'm here for I'm here for the history narrative. I don't want your um, layman science rubbish. But no, I I assumed people would like it. And and as you correctly identify, a lot of people uh, mention it as their favorites and. I got a message today, actually, from someone, you know, who's catching up going, you know, why didn't Yersinia Pestis modify itself not to kill people? (laughs) It's just like, I'm not a scientist. (laughs) I can only tell you what it does. I can't tell you why.
1: You mentioned about, like, basically using, like, not using that guy's book, but being greatly aided by that book. And I mean, I suppose it's safe to say in a way that people wouldn't necessarily have known about that book. And I think myself... I've really benefited from sources that people wouldn't otherwise know about and really use them and use the perspectives they have and yeah, like i mean my my recent run of episodes they've been fairly obscure themselves I mean they happened during the era of Louis the Fourteenth, but I mean most people know Louis the Fourteenth, but they don't really they just think the War of the Spanish Succession, and that's about it, but once you delve into it you you discover all these amazing things and I found this this one in particular uh, by a dutch historian called peter gale who wrote basically a history on, on the dutch the house of orange and the house of stuart from the 1640s to the 1670s and that really not only did it really help me out but i think without that book my my narrative would have really suffered and it wouldn't have been as kind of lively as it was so i mean i think what i what i'm trying to say is do you do you agree that podcasters do do a great service to kind of authors at the same time because they're able to take their books and kind of not necessarily make them their own, but certainly bring them to people that wouldn't otherwise hear them.
2: Absolutely. I think that's a, a lot of the value of pod, of podcasting in in a history context is that people, you know, I, who knows what percentage, but one could guess a very high percentage of the audience would never read seven books on one topic themselves. <laughs> Yeah. At, but are interested and so yeah the, you know and you could listen to just the audiobook but you might think eh, you know i'm not that interested in that topic and you know it it can be hard to open a book sometimes you know it, it can put you off and so if a podcaster can say look you know i'm going to i'm going to build all this structure to some to building up to giving you this information and if i didn't do that you would never get this information and i, I think people appreciate that and i think it does then, as you say, do justice to someone's work that otherwise would not be heard or, you know, would be heard only by hardcore, you know, fans. And interesting, talking about your podcast, um, I'm always struck by the balance in history between trends and forces and, you know, minor, you know, minor personality disagreements between rulers you know the the old great man (laughs) versus forces and trends and you know i spend a lot of time talking about the big forces and trends and you know the 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 mountain ranges of um of you know eastern turkey make a massive difference to byzantine history but Mm -hmm. you know the the really enjoyable thing about when diplomacy fails is discovering you know somewhat minute details that can make a massive difference to the future of the world and so you get a real i think we're, we're giving that balance you know nothing's ever simple that sometimes things seem inevitable and then you dig down in the details and go oh actually it all hinged on you know personality yeah. conflict
1: and the best is when you can have that eureka moment i think we're really i don't know if privileged is the right word but sometimes i feel really thankful that i'm able to bring and like when you know, like, especially for the likes of yourself, people will have heard of the history of Byzantium, but they won't know all the details. So the vast majority of what you're uncovering, you're exposing people to it for the first time. So I think there's a real value in that. Like I did an episode just to kind of introduce this whole project, and it was called, uh, like, Why Why Study History? Or just, like, Why History in General? And I think the set, like, there's such value in bringing stories to people... And I remember one of the one of the foibles, like one of the things that people always throw at history is, oh, history is really boring because it's just a load of dry dates. And I'm like, history can't be boring because hmm. people, people aren't boring by their nature. They're neither straightforward nor boring. And they always have strange or ridiculous facts about them. Like, I'm sure in your biographies of, of Byzantine emperors, you've come across like a strange example, like a strange character trait that you're like, what on earth was this guy doing hmm. like? It's it's great to be able to uncover these things, though. Like it feels like I'm beating a dead horse whenever I bring it up. But one thing that always stands out to me was the example of national honor as a kind of concept in international relations. And whenever people hear about it or talk about it, they always kind of just is a passing reference. But understanding a concept like national honor and that people genuinely believed that their state's honor was at stake, like whatever that means, understanding something like that helps us to get to the like get to grips with. How people really viewed their country, and in diplomacy, I think things like that are really important.
0: And oh, for the likes,
1: yeah. yeah, for the likes of of Byzantium, I mean, they maybe they didn't necessarily have national honor, but I mean, all those kind of concepts had had carried on obviously for for centuries. So I just think I don't know. Can can you apply national honor to Byzantium? This is putting you on the spot a bit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, you know, I think so. I think um, what comes up often about Byzantium is. Is religion you know oh mm-hmm. you know medieval people were all you know very superstitious and, and religious, and y- you have this thing repeatedly, which is that military victory implies god's favor, sure. which I suppose is is close to sort of national honor. The more you look into it, you know the more you recognize <laughs> I-, I would say an analogy with modern attitudes to economics. Mm. You know, the people in Byzantium were constantly under attack. So if an emperor could defeat the enemies uh, of, of the nation and no one raided that year, you'd say, wow, you know, <laughs> God is with us. Yeah. And so now you think, oh, you know, there are jobs and <laughs> um, the economy is doing well. And you yeah. don't say God's with us, but the effect is similar. You, you look at your politicians and go, well, they obviously know what they're doing. <laughs> I'd say that there's a similar thing there that sometimes – um, you get rid of your ruler because you've lost a great battle mm. and thus you as an, your national honor is satisfied because you've blamed it all on that guy. And now yeah. he's gone and we're yeah. going to get it back.
1: Big time. Yeah. Like the, you get, you achieve satisfaction for, for an insult or anything like that. Yes. I, I, I think it's really interesting because, because of this, the geographic position that, that Byzantium was in, it would have come across a lot of cultures that were different to itself. And like a lot of things like that, like with the kind of the idea, like you mentioned earlier on with say the chieftain, he makes a deal with an emperor and then the emperor dies. So then the the deal doesn't exist anymore. Like things like that, I find really fascinating because it's like, literally it is the clash of, of different cultures. Do you think that the Byzantines ever missed out on something? Maybe because of their diplomatic skill or say they, they, they offended A would-be partner maybe because they didn't really understand them very well say they missed out on on a good opportunity or a good alliance that would have been very beneficial to them
2: once the bulgarians had converted to christianity they they could have just accepted them as you know their worthy neighbors but they never really did they Mm. continued to think of them as as barbarians wearing you know christian clothes (laughs) and i suppose same with the crusaders that some have argued that the Crusades, you know, should have done more to help the Byzantines roll back the Turks. But again, there was too much mistrust. But interestingly, this question made me think of something slightly different, and it's it's still it's still to me about diplomacy, but it's it's actually in the area of religion and, and heresies. Um, the, I mean, the, the details are, are quite complex, but the the Byzantines had a series of heresies amongst particular groups of people, often kind of ethnic groups. So here you have a situation where a group of people either under your control or just outside your borders believe something quite different to you. And that seems to me a case where really good diplomacy could have bridged the gaps and kept those people buying into we're part of the empire. And instead, Mm. it was often a case of you are now unorthodox and you're going to be persecuted or <laughs> yeah. you're going to be given a sort of ham-fisted compromise that actually makes you dig in deeper on mm. no we believe in something different and that i think could well be looked at as missed opportunities where they drove divisions between people who then never thought of themselves as roman again
1: yeah yeah that, that literally is i mean that happened so much with the Ro- the romans full stop as well and it was almost like they tried to resist it, and then rather than resisting it, they just kind of went full tilt, and then suddenly everyone was Roman. So it's yeah. it's, it's it's interesting, yeah. I mean, to put it another way, because in my head, it's kind of rooted as the peak of Byzantine power is like Justinian, and once he kind of is afflicted by by the plague, he's like never the same. And then everything just goes to hell in a handbasket, as as Mike Duncan would say. But is that accurate? Hmm. I mean, is there any kind of spurts of like ingenuity or like hope for the future after Justinian?
2: The period we're in now, as in twenty seventeen, anyone listening in the future, um, is the is the tenth century I'm covering, and this is where the caliphate implodes, and suddenly the Romans enjoy about a century and a bit of resurgence. Okay. And they their diplomacy there is basically uh, expanding outward by trying to turn client you know, people into clients and then those clients into either semi Romans or, or Romans. And so right. it's it's not a it's a sort of yeah, it's it's a diplomatic expansion, I suppose. Mm. Um, trying to bring people onto the payroll and thus buying into the empire so that the borders are more secure. But yeah, I mean diplomatically Nothing was as active as Justinian because he, he was trying to, you know, get coups in Spain and in Yemen to, to work for his advantage. He was bringing, <laughs> you know, people in Georgia and people in the desert onto the payroll. So, yeah, he, he thought he could control the whole world through yeah. his diplomacy.
1: It sounds like a Byzantine Bismarck almost.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: Ah, uh, He's everywhere. Yeah, but I, I, I just wanted to bring up as well because you mentioned client states there and the like that's a good example of like a like a very straightforward kind of Byzantine diplomatic practice but whenever I think of anything to do with Byzantium it always comes with like the adjective Byzantine like very very mind-numbingly complicated its bureaucracy is ridiculous even more ridiculous than Ireland's is these days <laughs> it's kind of like I, I look at the way like I look at what Byzantium is infamous for having an overblown bloated bureaucracy. I mean, is that fair to apply to its diplomacy as well? And do you think if that is fair, do you think that might have negatively impacted its ability to like miss opportunities and all that kind of thing that we mentioned earlier?
2: I think their their ego, their their sense of uh, themselves as civilization as the center of the world is probably yeah. what what stood in the way of missed, you know, missing opportunities. Yeah, in terms of sort of uh, Byzantine practices um they definitely uh, and I, I imagine other courts did this but they they had a very formal prescribed way of doing things when when ambassadors came to visit oh yeah um we have, a, we have a lot of details about visits in the 10th century where ambassadors would get escorted into the palace you know down the main road of the city and all these officials and soldiers are lined up um, you know, to show their conformity and their obedience, and everyone's told what to wear and what to say. And then the ambassadors come before the emperor, who doesn't speak. You know, he, he, there are choirs there and organs, and every, <laughs> everything's done in a, you know in an order. And the ambassador even has to say things. You know, he's given his card and told you say this and wow. so they have so the small talk is all prescribed yeah. <laughs> you know, and so he has this conversation with the official back and forth all in front of the emperor everyone standing still listening and so yeah these rituals seem very odd to us and and sometimes they involved people shouting out you know you are magnificent emperor or whatever like 12 times in a row <laughs> wow. um Yeah. So yeah, that's where it it gets very Byzantine as we would understand it today. And uh, I I mean, it was all trying to get people to be very impressed and you'd give them lots of gifts and, you know, they, they, they had, they had some interesting ideas. So, I mean, the the bits of it that seem a bit more cunning is if, if, if you were coming from a tribe that lived a long way away. And so the Mm. idea was, we want you to attack someone who lives nearer. They might take you into the treasury and say, whoa, look at all this cash, you know, we can pay you. <laughs> um, whereas if you were from a tribe who lived next door, and were going to attack, then you'd get the tour of the walls. Oh, you know, yeah. With all the guards standing there. Look at how difficult it would be to <laughs> climb this. You know. So I think I think in between the, the formalized rituals, they, they, were, they knew what they were doing.
1: Mm-hmm. It sounds like they were very good at keeping up a facade as well. Yes. While all this went on. I suppose the appearance when you're facing down all these rivals... The appearance of strength is everything really
2: yeah absolutely mm.
1: well okay well we're kind of coming to the end i mean i've held on to you for an hour now so i think <laughs> we've got our we've got our birthday presents worth i mean it's it's been a good cake it's been a good listening time so i really appreciate you coming on and joining us robin and before you get out of here i think it's only fair to give the opportunity to have a plug so if anyone did not know somehow who you were or or what your podcast was, I mean, how would they find you?
2: Google the history of Byzantium <laughs> or stick it yeah. in iTunes or your podcast app, or you can go to the thehistoryofbyzantium.com. And uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, if you are, if somehow you've listened to this and you think, yeah, I, I'd be interested in. Um, checking out some, uh, some later Roman history. You can start from the beginning and all the introductions, but if you want to jump straight to listening a Bubonic Plague talk, uh, <laughs> then jump jump straight to episode 27, uh, The Walking Dead. Hear, hear some gory details and see if you think uh, that's the sort of uh, world you want to inhabit for a few hundred episodes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Robin. I really appreciate it.
2: Uh, It's been a pleasure, and uh, congratulations on five years of podcasting, and here's to uh, many, many more.
1: Here's to five more. Cheers. All righty. A huge thanks again to Robin Pearson for, well, joining me for the party. He was a great guest, and we loved having him on. Perhaps we'll even have him on in the future. For those of you joining this podcast, having listened to all that, basically because he kind of sent you my way, A huge thanks to him again, and a huge hello to you as well. Thanks so much for joining me for this very special birthday. It's going great, we're running wild, and there's still so much more good stuff to come. As you can see. I mean, we're barely in the first week. For patrons, you've got it all already, but hey, that's just the way it is. Anyway guys, I'm going to take my leave now, so check out all the other stuff that's still to come. I'm sure you'll enjoy that too. Thanks for listening guys, and I'll be seeing you all... Oh, so very soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.